Hey friends, welcome. Is this on? I don't think it is. Yeah, just a little, just a little bit. Um, hey, welcome to RUF. Uh, if this is your first time, bring a friend to RUF night. We're really glad you're here. Uh, thanks so much for coming. I want to say two things before we get started because we are kind of going through something tonight. It's one of those passages in Revelation 8 and 9 uh, that I would rather, like if I were to choose a text, this would not be the one that I would choose. But uh, I want to say two things kind of that I think will hopefully help you about why I'm even going to talk about, because we're talking about the judgment of God tonight, which is never fun for anyone to talk about. So two things before I start. Uh, One is that I think um, part of what I hope happens for us tonight is part of why I'm even doing this, part of why we go through books of the Bible is that, um, here's the way I was thinking about it. Like the Bible, like when I'm in line at Chipotle, uh, which I went to today in the Vista and it was closed, (laughs) which is really sad. When I'm in line, like there's that moment where I know like I'm going to get just anything that I want that's not going to be good for me. And then there are some days where I'm like, you know what? I need to be healthy today. I need to go with the, the brown rice. I need to go with the fajita veggies. I need to get, not go with the queso, even though I've never had it and I've heard it's actually, I'm not missing out. But I need to, you know, like I get to kind of pick and choose, right? What I want and some days I need to choose the hard things. Well, part of what we're doing in kind of going through a book of the Bible is to say the Bible is not like that. Like we actually don't get to pick and choose the things that we want. That we actually, if we're going to receive it, we've got to receive it whole. And there are hard parts. And tonight is one of those hard parts that we're going to kind of dive in and kind of try to work through. But it's important because we believe in the whole counsel of God's word. That includes things, not just about the love of God and the grace of God, but that includes things about his wrath and judgment. And so that's kind of why we're doing what we're doing. Second, I realized that it is uh, Bring a Friend to RUF Night. And I just want to say, on the one hand, I'm sorry that you're kind of getting uh, to wrestle with a hard text tonight. Also sorry that, or maybe you were like, you know, there's probably no coincidence that we're talking about the judgment of God and who knows how that Taco Bell is going to hit you, right? Um, But I'm also, I'm I'm not sorry because I feel like you're coming on a night where you get to kind of see why we do what we do. And I hope you get to see, I hope as we talk about, my my hope tonight is I get to show you how the judgment of God actually um, is going to make the love of God all the more beautiful. And that actually you can't have a God of love who is also not a God of judgment. We're going to talk about that as we go through this text. Uh, I'm hoping uh, to show you that tonight. So that being said, those two things, uh, let's dive into the text. Revelation 8 and 9. This is a long passage, so we're just going to dive right in. Here's what uh, Jesus, the vision Jesus gives to John. Uh, When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. 
The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and, and it fell in a third of the rivers and in the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. And then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the tree that the three angels are about to blow. For, uh, chapter 9. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. <laughs> oh, this is, let me just stop here and say this is just going to get crazier, so just bear with me. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. And then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. And they have as a king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe was passed, but all two woes are still to come. Bear with me. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the river, the great river Euphrates. And so the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. And the number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number, and this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. And by these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. And the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Okay, let me pray for us. And then we're going to dive in. Let's pray first. Uh, Lord, uh, we confess that this, sometimes your word is crazy to us. And Lord, I pray that um, our attempts to understand it apart from your spirit are hopeless. And Lord, we are helpless. And so, Lord, I pray that as we, as we just think for a little bit together tonight about your judgment, 
which in this passage seems so horrifying, seems so terrible, seems so awful, seems so severe, if we're being honest. Or would you wrestle with us? Or would you wrestle with us like you wrestled with Jacob? Or would you bear with us like you invited your people in Isaiah to come and reason with you? Uh, would you make us like Thomas and where we have questions and where we have doubts and where we have, even as, as they are rising us, maybe even reading this tonight, that you would be the Lord who meets us where we are, that you welcome our questions, you welcome our doubts, and Lord, would you um, show us yourself that we might understand you, that we might love you. We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. Um, so this past Sunday, uh, the, so we're talking about the judgment of God. Like that, that eight and nine are the it's crazy. Remember, it's, it's a graphic picture novel. The images are not supposed to be literal. We're going to talk about that in a second. But it's a crazy conveyal of how terrible the wrath and judgment of God are. We just can't get around that. Uh, this came over for me a little bit on Sunday. We were preparing for church. Part of why I believe in Satan is uh, trying to get my family ready for church on Sunday morning. It's just like hell on earth, truly. And so we had one of those, those Sunday mornings. And my daughter, my third daughter is like the meekest of my children. If you've met them, she's like the sweetest. And, uh, but even she was like really pissed off that we were going to church. And so just in a moment of like, you have moments as a parent, you guys aren't there yet, but you will be, where you just kind of say something that you don't, you just say it in frustration. And she was like, why are we going to church today? And just without thinking, I said, because I don't want you to go to hell. <laughs> we can laugh. <laughs> I'm really earning that, uh, that number one dad mug in my house right now. Um, and like back, back puddle and, you know, talk about Jesus and we love Jesus. Uh, so anyway, so but here there it is. When we think about when we think about those kind of things, God's judgment, whether we're talking about hell or just His judgment or wrath in particular, I think it's it's hard for us because we really don't want to think about it, much less talk about it. You know, I think at at, at best it seems for a lot of us like a really primitive idea. Like, do we really even believe that? Like, isn't that kind of like the God of the Old Testament and not the God of the New Testament? Well, no. Jesus talked a lot about hell. That doesn't really work. Uh, and then uh, at worst, we could say maybe, you know, one of your questions that is a fair question is, but isn't that kind of religion, isn't that kind of belief part of what's wrong with the world? That people have died in the name of religions believing in the judgment and wrath of God and that they're actually agents of fulfilling that in some degree. So when we come to, you know, the way that I think about it is when we think about the judgment of God, it's like that cousin that we have. We all have this cousin who, like, you... You're going to have to see at least every couple of years, but like you really hope no one makes the connection that you're related. You know what I'm saying? Like I've got one and their Instagram game is whatever the opposite of strong is because all they ever post about is like ridiculous Dabo Sweeney worship and or like the most basic non-inspirational inspirational quotes of all time that just make your eyeballs want to like fall out of your head. And it's like, let's not, let's not. No one made that connection. I'm not, we're not related. But eventually I'm going to have to see them, right? We, we are related. And I think the judgment of God can be like that for us. We don't really, it's that cousin. Revelation 8 9 or that cousin. What do we do with this? It's, it seems like, it, you know, maybe you feel this. It seems almost embarrassing. This is in the Bible. What do we do with it? And I just want to, like, I don't want to disappoint you, but I do, I'm going to try to do what I can do in this passage, which is certainly not going to answer all your questions. But what I do want to do is try to make sense together of why the Bible won't let us out of this idea that our God is not just a God of love, that he is a God of judgment, that he really does have wrath and anger towards sin, that he's not indifferent. And so the way I want to do that is really do uh, two things, two points. Uh, The first, I want to talk about how judgment is actually happening now, and that's a good thing. 
And the second thing I want you to see is that judgment is going to happen fully and finally later, and that's a terrible thing. So let's, let's dive in it that way. Uh, first, judgment is happening now, and it's a really good thing. Two huge things we have to say to kind of keep, if we're going to ever interpret Revelation rightly, we've got to remember these two things. I've said them every week. Number one, Revelation is primarily trying to reveal, it's trying to unveil things as they are happening now. Things that we don't typically see. It's pulling back the curtain of, how, of real, the reality behind reality. We've got to remember this. So that means when we're talking about this judgment, it's really a judgment that is happening even now. The second thing that I've already said is we have to remember that Revelation is a book that is imagery-driven, but those images are not meant to be taken literally. Like when we looked at the images of suffering a few weeks ago, they were images meant to convey something powerful, and that's the same thing happening in our text tonight. If we don't keep those two things in mind, we will have crazy views of Revelation. So those two things in mind. But here's what I want you to notice. Look at verses eight or chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. It's fascinating because the, the causal effect of this judgment going out is actually, verse 3 and 4 says, the prayers of the saints. It's a beautiful image. It's this image of incense rising before this throne that we've been looking at. And, those, and the incense contained in the incense, in a symbolic way, are the prayers of the saints. Now, we know the saints simply in Scripture are the people of God, people who have faith in Jesus. And I want to think for a second, if those prayers could be thought bubbles, what would have been in those prayers? Well, like, certainly there would have been prayers of confession of sin, asking for forgiveness. Certainly some of those prayers would have been prayers of ad- just adoring God, praising God, thanking God for who he is. Some of those prayers would have been, no doubt, prayers for friends and family and their suffering and their sickness, prayers for salvation. But here's the kind of prayers that, that are happening, that are tied to this judgment that is happening now that we don't get, and they are cries for justice. You have to remember, the people of God in this, in this place are being, they're under intense suffering. They have been, um, they are facing the injustices of rape and murder and imprisonment. They have lost loved ones under this evil emperor. And so no, no doubt, part of those prayers that are rising up to heaven are prayers crying out for God to see and do something about it. And here's what we have to remember is that I want to convince you that God's judgment is actually a good thing when we can think about it in light of justice, that we need him and we long for him, whether you know it or not, to judge rightly and truly. Uh, let me just try to do this to, to prove it to us that that's true. Think about it just a couple ways. Uh, why are we so obsessed, if you're like me, why are we so obsessed with murder mystery, like true crime podcasts? Like I, if you, I don't know if you've listened to Up and Banished. If you haven't, it is a fascinating listen. And I just get really, really hooked. And part of why I get hooked is I want to know who killed Tara Gronstead. Like, who was, her, who was her murderer? And the podcast is driven by that question. We've never caught the murderer. Who is he? We've got to find him. We long for justice. Why are there 19 seasons of SVU? Right? 19. Long, it's got to be the longest running show right now. 19 seasons. My man Daniel can tell you more. Why are there three, almost four, takens? Like, that actually makes me feel like I've earning, I'm earning that number one dad mug. It's like Liam Neeson's lost his daughter again and again. And no, one more time. And one more time. But, like, we, why do we see these movies? Because somewhere we long, to, we long for justice. Um, let me do it two bigger ways. One silly, one small. Here's the silly one. So it's 2000. Uh, Clemson, Carolina are playing. Clemson's, uh, I think, ranked 14th. Carolina's ranked 25th. It's at Clemson. I'm actually at the game. And you might be too young to remember this game. 
but it was a famous game because it was uh, Derek Watson, if you remember him, went over the goal line, fumbled, Carolina recovers in the end zone, 59 seconds, Carolina goes up, 14-13. And every, like, I was there, I was like, game's over. Carolina stopped the defense all game long. And Woody Dantzler gets on the field, nothing happens first down, nothing happens second down, they're about the 50-yard line, then third and 12, 19 seconds left. I just rewatched this part of the game. 19 seconds left, Woody Dantzler, who was not a great passer, throws a 50-yard bomb to Rod Gardner. And Rod Gardner, <laughs> like, if, you have to go watch it. It's called, if you're a Clemson fan, you call it the catch two. Jerry Butler was catch one. If you're a Carolina fan, you call it the push off. Because as you can see in the picture, it is clearly, like, I went back and watched this several times. It is a massive push off. And here's the crazy thing is Rod Gardner not only does this massive push off, uh, and catches the ball is against not Andre Goodman. It was yeah, Andre Goodman uh, catches the ball. But the crazy thing is the ref is right there. You can't see it in the picture, but the ref is literally I'm not kidding you, two like like inches with from Rod Gardner. Like he sees the whole thing. And if you're a Carolina fan, you remember this. It was <laughs> it was injustice. It was clearly a push off. And in fact, Carolina fans were so pissed. And my friend after the game got into a fight with a Clemson fan and lost some teeth. He was so committed, truly. Lost a few teeth, got it fixed. He's a pastor in town now. It's actually beautiful. <laughs> you might meet him someday. Lost teeth. Why? Because we long for the ref to make the right call. We long, and even this way, even in our sports, for justice, right? For, for the right call to be made, for refs to judge correctly. That's the silly one. We long for it. Here's the second one. Let me put this on you. So... Uh, a cool opportunity that's completely Jesus. I've been able to volunteer at my kid's school and kind of get involved with some of the um, kids who are struggling, who come from struggling families, who live in poverty. And so I've gotten, uh, I've started to kind of build a relationship with Mrs. Mack. She's a guidance counselor. She mainly handles troubled kids in ISS. So I'm in, this is three weeks ago, I'm in Mrs. Mack's office and she is on the phone. She's really upset. She hangs up the phone because I usually check in with her and say, who do I, who should I meet with today? Hangs up the phone and she says, I'm sorry, but I'm just really trying to get a hold of the district. And I'm like, I'm sorry, like, what? Is everything okay? She's like, no. My daughter, four years old, she, gets, she has to take the bus to her preschool program at another side of town. She's sitting on the bus in her little backpack, four year old little girl, and a 12 year old who gets on the bus decides, we don't still know what happened, but he decides for some reason that she is in his seat and he punches her in the stomach as hard as he can. So hard that she has to go to the hospital. They're pretty sure, I haven't checked, like as we were talking, she was going to the hospital. Pretty sure her appendix was ruptured. And Mrs. Mack is on the phone saying, what happened? Like, what are we doing about this 12-year-old? What is the bus driver doing? Like, this cannot happen. Like, even as I say that story to you, I hope something in your stomach dropped. You're like, that's not right. Like, that needs to be handled. That needs to be taken care of. We actually long for justice, whether you know it or not. We long for judgment, for God to be a judge and judge rightly and truly. Um, Here's where this is lost in us, though. Most of us haven't had those kinds of injustices happen to us. And so when we think about prayers being cries for justice, we don't really have a category for it. No one captured this better than Miroslav Volf. Mirzlov Wolf was born in Croatia. He lived through some of the worst recent genocides that we've seen in a long time. And here's what he writes, though, about this idea that we actually long for God to be a God of judgment. Here's what he says. He says, my thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. My thesis will be unpopular with many in the West. 
But imagine speaking to people, as I have, whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned, and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. You point to them. We should not retaliate. Your point to them. We should not retaliate. Why not? I say the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge in a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent. The idea will invariably die like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. If God, listen what he says, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. I'm going to read that again. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final, a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. Here's what I want you to see. Just think about it for, for a second with me. For God to truly be a God of love, a God that we, we talk about God's love all the time, which is a beautiful thing, Here's what you have to see. He must, he must be a God of judgment. Why? Think, why? Because when you really truly love something, think about it like this. When you truly love, when you truly love something, you are willing to defend it and to fight for it and to protect it at all costs, even great costs. When you love something, you defend it, you fight for it. Listen, this, this is in my marriage right now, right? Conversation yesterday morning. And by conversation, I mean fight, <laughs> argument. And the fight is, Sammy, why don't you ever defend me? Why don't you ever fight for me? That's what my wife is asking me. Why is she asking that? Here's what she's saying. Sammy, if you really loved me, there would be times where you would stand up for me. There would be times where you would get mad for me. There would be times where you would defend me and fight for me. And let me take you a step further for you. If you don't get this, If you don't get this side of God, that God is a God of judgment, you can't really love God. Why? Because to love someone means you know the whole truth about them. And you love all of them. And if you don't see the whole truth of what Scripture says about God, you can't possibly love Him. What you're loving is your idea of Him. Uh, Thinking about this takes me back to the worst date I've ever been on. It was, like, horrific. Like, I'm talking about drove to her house. She lived with her parents went to the front door and just, it was one of those dates where you knew from the beginning, like, this is not, this is not going to go well. Cause I went to open her door and she said, no, thank you. I can get that for myself. And I was like, Oh shoot, here we go. <laughs> so then she gets in the car independently and we like drive. I mean, you can imagine how it starts like this. We're like driving to the restaurant, trying to make small talk. One of those things where the restaurant, like I order appetizer, she doesn't. So then I like awkwardly eat the salad in front of her. I mean, it was just a disaster of a date. And I was pretty sure we were going to like get married. That's how I'm romantic. I am. I was like, Oh, we're going to get married. And then the date was horrific. Thankfully we went back to hang out with friends afterwards and we just never saw each other again. But my roommate nailed it. He said, Sammy, you didn't really like her. You like the idea of her. I was like, ah, man, that's true. And can I say to us sometimes, we don't really love God. We love our idea of God. And if that idea of God doesn't include Revelation 8 and 9, we don't really love God, who says, I am also not just the God of love, but a God of judgment. And his love is not sentimental. His love fights for us. His love defends us. His love defends anything that's going to 
hurt or harm his creation. I love the way the Rebecca Peppert says it. I like to call her Becky with the good hair. She's the true Becky with the good hair. Here's what she says. She says, think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. Human love here offers a true analogy. The more a father loves his son, the more he hates in him the drunkard, the liar, the traitor. If I, a flawed, narcissistic, sinful woman, can feel this much pain and anger over someone's condition, how much more a morally perfect God who made them. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but is settled opposition to the cancer of sin, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. For God to be a God of love, he has to be a God of judgment because he cares and defends that which he loves. God is judging now, and it's a good thing, and we, we, this is part of what it means to belong to him. Is we care about the things he cares about. But then second, judgment is going to happen, and this is a terrible thing. Judgment is happening now, and it's a good thing. Judgment is going to happen truly and fully and finally, and that's a terrible thing. We're going to breeze through this section. The first point was by far the longest. I want to breeze through this. There are four clues in this passage we're not going to have time to unpack. Four clues that kind of show us that this is what this passage is doing is it's like a tornado siren. It's warning us. These judgments, these seven trumpets that are happening in our midst now are meant to warn us of a greater and final judgment that is coming. That starts with the household of God and then goes from there. And that's, this passage is like a wake-up call. It's like an alarm clock trying to wake us up to this reality. That God cares. He sees our sin and he cares about it and he has to do something about it. Um, four clues. First, the trumpets. Trumpets in scripture are always meant to announce something and to wake you up. To get your attention. To get, you know, to get hold of you. Second, the limits. <laughs> Did you notice all the limits throughout this passage? Do you notice it says a third and a third and a third and a third? In other words, this judgment is not complete yet. And in fact, it's got a mercy to it because it's, it's saying this is a judgment day come early, but there is a, 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 a judgment that's coming that is going to be far, far worse than this, far more complete than this. Third, the explicit, the explicit mention of plagues. It takes us back to Exodus. It takes us back to what God is doing in, with Pharaoh in Egypt, trying to warn them, trying to wake them up to the reality of himself. And then the fourth thing you have to see is the end of the passage. I'm going to read it for us because it's terrifying. Here's what it says. This is actually the terrifying part. The images aren't terrifying. Like the images are terrifying, but this part is far more terrifying. Here's what it says. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. In other words, idols. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. In other words, these are meant to be a wake-up call. And yet it's clear in this passage that as these wake-up calls come, there are still people who stay and choose to stay asleep who refuse to repent, who have walked away from God and refuse to acknowledge the reality of his holiness and refuse to acknowledge the reality of their sinfulness. This is true, right? Um, This is where Jesus in Luke 13, he's talking about this. He's with his disciples and events like this have happened. Two Galileans have been killed at, at Pilate's hand. It was pretty tragic. And then also this, this building, this tower falls and 18 people and kills them. And Jesus' disciples were trying to make sense of it. Here's what Jesus says. He said, There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. 
And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He's talking to his disciples. And he says, Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In other words, what Revelation 8 and 9 are meant to be for us are a wake-up call to repentance, to turning back from the things that are killing us and want to destroy us, that have scorpions for tails, the sting of that, the sting of sin, to wake up, to repent and run to the only safe place, which is God himself. And there's actually a third point that I want you to see, and it's this. It's that judgment, if you're in Christ, has already happened. It's already passed for you. Think about it with me for a second. Um, The one in this vision who is seated right next to the Father, he's the one who Scripture says is coming to judge the living and the dead. He's coming again to to be the judge. And yet at the same time, he knows something about judgment and he knows something about pain. He knows something about the punishment of sin. You know, we've entered into Holy Week, and part of what I, uh, we did Palm Sunday in the church I preached on Sunday, and I had never really made this connection, but there's this beautiful, so Jesus, you know, he enters in, the people are praising him. And then i kind of forgotten, he does some teaching, especially in the book of Matthew, uh, in, in that span between his entering Jerusalem and his crucifixion. And there's this one random, almost throwaway passage where Jesus, he's just pronounced woes on the Pharisees, judgment on the Pharisees. And then in this really kind of um, sweet moment, he looks over Jerusalem. He's obviously on some kind of a hill. And he says, he says this. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stuns those who are sent to it. And then he says, how often... Would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you are not willing? Now, here's why that's fascinating. Maybe you know this, maybe you don't. So it's a, it's a, a pretty common phenomenon in nature that when a mother hen senses danger with her chicks, she literally calls them, however, you know, I'm not going to do a bird call, but she calls them to herself and she covers them with her wings to protect them from danger. Literally, I was reading a story just a few months ago when one of the California wildfires, a fireman, he's walking through these just burnt-to-crisp woods, and he sees this little lump in the grass, just burnt to a crisp, and he kind of nudges it with his foot, and out, to his shock, he, like, stands, you know, to his surprise, out run these four little baby chicks. And what happens, if you, you can read about it, what happens is mother hens, even in death situations like like being burned to death cover their hens in a way where they are safe from harm and you see what jesus is saying the only safe place from the judgment of god that is coming for you and for me the only safe place is taking refuge under the wings of jesus And part of what Jesus is saying in this passage is he's saying, you don't understand that what I've come to do is to go to that cross. And by going to that cross, what I'm doing is I am taking the judgment that you deserve, Jerusalem, that you deserve. But I am taking it. I'm absorbing it 
Like a mother hen covering her chicks. I'm absorbing it because I love you and this is my father's good plan. And this is the way that you're going to be spared and saved. And this is the question. How can a God be a God of love and a God of judgment? Like how can these two things exist? And the cross is the only way. To have the father say, I'm not going to, I'm going to spare my own son in the place of sinners. To have Jesus say, I'm going to give my life for the judgment that, that, that my disciples, that my believers deserve. And I'm going to die in their place for them. I'll close with this. There's a true story that happened. This is probably six years ago now. Stephanie Decker. And she, uh, she's living in Indiana. And she is experiencing the worst tornadoes that have ever come through this little small town in Indiana. And she's here. She's at home with her children. And she, these winds, 175 mile an hour tornado is coming through. She sees it and through the window. She sees their trampoline be lifted off the ground and just thrown. And her immediate impulse is to grab her children and to just cover them. And as she does, she, she says this in the story. She says, as she was interviewed, she says, I was covered in bricks and stones. I could let go of them, move the stuff off me and get away from that beam. There was a beam that was falling that ended up cracking eight of her ribs and ended up crushing her legs such that she lost them, which is why she has no legs in this picture. And she says, I chose to let the beam fall instead of letting go of my kids. The feeling was I'd rather get my arms ripped off instead of letting go of my kids. What I want you to see is, do you understand that that's precisely who Jesus is for you? And they're really kind of two questions. One is, like, have you heard the alarm? Like, there is a judgment coming for the things that you and I have thought and said and done. There's a judgment coming. Are are you awakened to the sting of sin? It's causes what it's done in you and in your friends and what it's done to the heart of God. And then second, have you run and taken refuge under the wings of Jesus? Because that's the only safe place. The only safe place from the judgment of God. Let's pray together. Lord, I I pray that you would continue to wrestle with us through these things. They are hard things. Uh, They are not fun things to think about. And yet, Lord, I pray that you would wake us up by by your spirit that we might um, that we might face who we are, but that we might also flee to you, uh, that we might find rest and refuge and salvation under your wings. Lord, I want, we, we um, long for that for myself and for my friends and pray that you would give that to us. We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. We all stand and sing this our, our last